Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME webcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by CME Outfitters, LLC, and Howard University College of Medicine, Office of Continuing Medical Education. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly USA, LLC. For further information concerning Lilly Grant Funding, visit www.lillygrantoffice.com. This activity is titled, Improving the Care of People with Mental Illness in Rural Areas. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Grayson S. Norquist and Dr. John C. Fortney. Dr. Norquist, our moderator for this activity, is Professor and Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Norquist has no financial disclosures to report. Dr. Fortney is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the College of Public Health, and director of the Division of Health Services Research and Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He is also a research health scientist in the Central Arkansas Veterans Healthcare System and associate director for research at the South Central Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Fortney has no financial disclosures to report. Over the next hour, Dr. Norquist and Dr. Fortney will lead us through their presentation and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of the CE activity, participants should be able to recognize specific challenges and barriers in treating mental illness in rural and underserved populations. Identify opportunities for collaboration among healthcare providers to improve access to mental health services and to integrate technology into mental health diagnosis and management strategies to improve access and patient outcomes. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 435 or call 877-CME. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, and welcome to today's Neuroscience CME webcast, Improving the Care of People with Mental Illness in Rural Areas. I'm Gray Norquist, and I'm joined today by Dr. John Fortney for this educational activity and what we consider a very important and critical issue facing healthcare today. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, more than 60 million people live in rural areas. And we know from prior work that people in these areas face specific challenges to accessing, using, and paying for quality healthcare. It's critical that we ensure they are able to obtain the best healthcare possible. While there are many challenges, Dr. Fortney and I are going to focus today on three key areas. Barriers to treating mental illness in rural populations, opportunities for collaboration, and the use of technology to improve access and patient outcomes. So let's get started. First, I'll review the objectives of the program today. Our first objective is to recognize specific challenges and barriers in treating mental illness in rural and underserved populations. We will then discuss opportunities for collaboration among healthcare providers to improve access to mental health services. 
And finally, we'll go through how to use technology to improve access and patient outcomes. So the first learning objective, let's begin. To recognize specific challenges and barriers in treating mental illness in rural and underserved populations. John, can you tell us what areas are rural? Uh, yes, this, this map shows the um, counties in, in the U.S. that are designated by the Office of uh, Management and Budget uh, as rural. And as you can see, about two-thirds of U.S. counties are designated as rural, covering the vast majority of the country. And according to this definition, about 20% of the U.S. population lives in a rural county. So this really shows um, that this is a major issue in the country, given the amount of geographic space that we're talking about. Right. Did you want to tell us something about these rural area differences as far as prevalence? Sure. Um, according to the National Comorbidity Study Replication, which was a very large um, survey of randomly sampled Americans, there are no uh, rural-urban differences in the 12-month uh, prevalence rates of psychiatric disorders. Overall, about uh, a quarter of Americans have a um, psychiatric disorder, 18% with an anxiety disorder, about 10% with a mood disorder, and about 4% with a substance abuse disorder. But there are no differences across the rural-urban areas. In another large uh, uh, survey of randomly sampled Americans, they found no um, major rural-urban differences in the prevalence of the most, one of the most common disorders, depression. So they don't appear to be differences in the prevalence of mental disorders, but what are the differences that we see in rural residents? Uh, well, we do see uh, large differences in um, service utilization. Uh, rural residents, again, according to the National Comorbidity Study, rural residents with a mental health disorder are less likely to get any treatment, either formal or informal care, for, for their mental health problems. And uh, importantly, they are much less likely to get uh, specialty mental health care treatment. And they are uh, rural residents with depression, interestingly, are more likely to receive pharmacotherapy, and they're less likely to receive psychotherapy. So when they do get, in, do get care, they're probably going to their primary care provider and getting um, medications rather than seeing a mental health specialist and getting counseling. So there are obviously some differences in uh access and use among rural residents and uh, the types of uh, services they use. So what can you tell us about the quality of care? There's good evidence that shows that if you receive adequate care for, for mental health problems, you're going to have better uh, outcomes for patients with depression. Unfortunately, only about a third of patients with depression or anxiety disorders receive adequate care. So I have to ask you here, what do you mean by adequate care? Well, different studies define them uh, differently, but essentially it represents the bare minimum of care one would need to, to recover from the illness. Uh, for example, in some studies, for those receiving psychotherapy, um, adequate care would be defined as having uh, eight or more visits for counseling. And for those receiving pharmacotherapy, it's often defined as having a two-month supply of your medication uh, as well as four visits with your prescribing provider. Now, uh, it's also important to know that uh, receipt of adequate care is significantly greater in specialty care settings than in primary care settings. And as you just said just a minute ago, individuals living in rural areas are less likely to get specialty care, correct? Exactly. So there's a real concern about the, the, the quality of care that they're getting. 
In fact, uh, one study has shown that travel time to providers is a significant predictor of receiving adequate care. So for patients with depression who um, have to travel about 30 minutes to receive care, about a third of those receive um, adequate care, compared to one in five patients uh, who, traveling uh, greater than 60 minutes would receive adequate care. So, rural, so this is, uh, quality of care is likely lower in rural areas because of these reasons. So we see a lot about different ways of defining. You showed us this map earlier about uh, which areas are rural, and uh, we know the federal government has a certain way of defining rural. So can you go over that for us and tell us how does the government determine what's rural and what is not rural? Uh, well, they do it many different ways. Uh, there's more than 15 official definitions of rural that are used by the federal government to um, allocate resources various, uh, fed, for various um, federal programs. So it, it can be very confusing. Uh, one of the most common ones is the Office of Management Budget definition, which is based on counties, uh, and they uh, divide them up into core urban areas with greater than 50,000 people, micropolitan areas with uh, 10 to 50,000 people, and other counties um, with less than 10,000 are considered rural. Another common definition is, is from the census, and that definition is based on census tracts, and again, is based on population level. And um, the Department of Agriculture also has uh, more uh, kind of more refined definitions that are based on a continuum of rural-urban. Uh, for example, the rural-urban continuum codes uh, classifies counties by urbanization as well as their uh, nearness to an urban area. Likewise, the rural-urban commuting area codes classify census tracts using population, population density, and actual information from the census about commuting from the county to the, the closest urban area. And then finally, the urban influence codes is, uh, are based on uh, counties, again, and the size of the largest city and nearness to a metropolitan area. So these are the types of um, definitions that researchers tend to use. So it's kind of dense, obviously, a little bit, and, yeah. you know, these things are used for, for obviously for federal reasons and sometimes bureaucratic and possibly uh, – financial issues and stuff, but the key issue is what does rural really mean, I think, uh, from a practical point of view? Well, right. So these federal definitions don't really help in designing um, ways to in improve the delivery of mental health services uh, in rural areas. So I'd like to turn now to kind of what does, what does it really mean? Uh, rural is not just about population density. It's a complex, multidimensional concept. Um, that's a function of sociodemographics, geographic access to care, social networks, and, and cultural no norms. It's not that everyone who lives in the same county or, or census tract is equally rural. Um, some people living in an urban area may be quite rural um, because they recently moved there, and people living in rural areas may be very cosmopolitan. We really need to understand um, the individual and not just the, the place they live. So how do you think this helps us? Uh, design services uh, and improve kind of these quality issues that we discussed just a few minutes ago? Well, like I said, we need to uh, focus on really what are uh, the differences in, in these multidimensional dimensional concepts like uh, demographics. Let's, let's turn now to demographics. Um, we know that individuals living in rural areas have lower income. Uh, we know they have lower educational levels, and we know that they tend to be older. 
So in knowing this, I guess, you know, knowing that they have lower incomes and things, it has it helps us think about how we design systems of care and stuff in the rural areas, correct? Right. Okay. So let's talk about issues of access. What are the differences between rural and urban areas related to just the sheer number of providers and the access to them? Because that seems to be a very important issue. Right. Well, th um, this next slide shows uh, two graphs, and one is um, the first one on the left there shows the availability of mental health specialists. And uh, so across the board from um, advanced um, psych nurses to licensed counselors to man uh, marriage and family therapists, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, you can see the green lines are the number of providers per 1,000 population and, and the blue lines are, are, are the, um, in, the, in the rural areas. And there are big differences in the availability of mental health specialists, which is probably driving the differences in service utilization that we see. In addition, if you look at uh, measures of accessibility or the travel time to the uh, closest provider, you also see um, big differences. So, um, for example, in, in, Ar uh, in Arkansas, the um, average travel time to the closest mental health specialist is, is about 14 minutes, that's the blue line there on the right, compared to about 28 minutes for rural individuals. So it's, it's twice as far as they have to travel to see a mental health specialist. Um, you'll notice that for general medical providers, that's really much less. It's, it's nine minutes in our urban areas compared to 16 minutes um, in rural areas. So they're facing much longer travel times and they have fewer choices in terms of um, sheer number of providers. Okay, so these days, you know, we kind of talk about social networks as online communities like Facebook and a variety of those types of things. But what are some of the characteristics of social networks in r rural and urban areas? Because that seems to be an important issue. Okay, well, first let me define um, what researchers think of social networks as. And they're, they're essentially comprised of family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers with whom an individual interacts or communicates on a regular basis. And the important structural characteristics of a network include its size, how many people you interact with, the density, which means the proportion of an individual in a person's social network knows the other individuals in their network, um, the intensity, how often you have contact with them, and the duration of the network, how long people have, have known each other. Um, and these social networks can have a big impact on an individual's perceived need for care by providing feedback to them about their symptoms, and by either motivating them or demotivating them from, from seeking treatment, and perhaps even by providing substitute care, um, informal care. And so in rural areas, uh, we expect that the social networks are smaller, there's fewer people in them, they're denser, they're more the people within the network are more likely to know each other, and of greater duration, you're probably going to know pe people longer. And as a result, we think that uh, the social networks in rural areas are actually going to have a larger impact on help seeking in a positive and or maybe a, a negative way. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I know you know that this happens in both directions because there are the positive um, aspects of this. So you take somebody who has a potentially severe mental disorder like schizophrenia, and if the, the network is very strong and knows the person, they might be able to help get that person into services. It's well known, particularly in uh, Europe, where the village, if you will, kind of takes care of the person. But I guess it could also work in um, 
negative direction if there's a, particularly a stigma attached or something to a particular disorder and people feel like the best way to take care of it, for example, if someone's depressed, instead of getting specialty services, they might push them more to uh, perhaps a faith-based group or something, not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but it might not necessarily be the best for them at that particular point in time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so like, I, I agree that the social network can either um, encourage people to seek care or discourage them from seeking care, and that probably depends on the culture of that particular community. And let me turn to that now. Okay. Kind of culture represents the shared values and behaviors of a, of a community. And uh, rural cultures may, we don't have a lot of information about this, but they may kind of delay the identification or awareness of a mental health problem, perhaps by allowing people to, to uh, cope better. Um, they may discourage use of formal services, um, as you suggested, and encourage use of informal services um, uh, with a faith-based community, traditional healers, et cetera. And this rural culture, we, we do have the sense that rural culture is, uh, results in greater self-reliance and stoicism, so people tend to feel like they can handle their problems on their own rather than seeking help. And there's this issue of uh, very important issues of stigma um, that people with mental health problems um, uh, will feel less of themselves if they go seek help for care. So before we go into the issue about stigma, I, I think it's important to point out here that as we design services in these rural areas, that it's not just about providing a particular program, set up an office, set it there, but we have to understand all these components about the rural area to make sure that we design our systems of care so that it reaches as many people as possible and gets them the right kinds of services. Right, and tries to address these specific barriers faced by the rural population. Great. So now, as we talked about, and I mentioned earlier, stigma is obviously a very significant barrier to um, people getting care for uh, mental illness. And we know it's an issue in both urban and rural areas. But can you tell us more about this issue about stigma? Right. So stigma occurs when <clears throat> people recognize and they label differences in human characteristics or behaviors and then link label persons with negative stereotypes. It happens for lots of different things, including um, mental illness. Uh, we kind of divide up stigma into, into three types. Uh, first, there is uh, public stigma, which is kind of the general public's perception of labeled individuals. Uh, including their prejudices towards them and their discrimination um, towards them. There is also provider stigma. Often providers will have negative perceptions about some of their patients uh, with mental uh, health problems and perhaps deliver them uh, fewer services or deliver them lower quality services. In fact, there's been some recent findings in the literature that clearly indicate that those with mental health disorders or at risk for receiving poor quality medical and preventive health care services. So it's not always about the individual person. It's uh, both sides of the diet here in the provider and with the person itself. Right. And then uh, <clears throat> moving towards the person, the self-stigma occurs when those who are being stigmatized agree with the prevailing stereotypes and internalize these reactions of the public. And, um, you know, people often develop and sustain these conceptions of mental illness early in their life as a part of their cultural socialization before the onset of their disorder. And so individuals who are going to share these beliefs about mental illness and then develop a behavioral health disorder can really have negative consequences in terms of their health seekers. So stigma is an issue. It's an issue across uh, all populations everywhere. What do we know about how this 
the issue of stigma barriers between rural and urban populations? Uh, well, we, we believe that stigma is a greater barrier to treatment in rural areas. And um, let's look at exactly why um, in terms of the different types of stigma. It turns out that, um, at least for heavy drinkers, uh, that they do that rural heavy drinkers don't perceive more public stigma than urban heavy drinkers, uh, nor do they perceive more uh, stigma from their providers. Nor is there any evidence really that there's greater self-stigma in rural areas compared to urban areas. However, there's one very important difference, and that is that the perceived treatment anonymity is really is significantly associated with both rurality and the density of one's network. So rural residents perceive less anonymity associated with seeking treatment compared to urban residents, and presumably because they live in these smaller, more tight, tightly knit communities. And anonymity is critical because public stigma isn't really a barrier to care if you believe you can receive treatment without others finding out about it. So it's kind of the interaction between stigma and anonymity that comes into play here. So for example, one study has found that the higher levels of perceived public stigma among patients with depression was a barrier to care in rural areas where there was little uh, anonymity associated with seeking treatment, but it wasn't a barrier in urban areas where there was much higher anonymity. I always like, we've talked about the, the issues in rural uh, and urban areas, the differences there, and um, you know some of the problems that we face in these rural areas. And I'm always one who likes to say, so what? Now, how are we going to help people in rural areas? So let's turn to our next uh, objective here which um, is going to look at um, collaboration and support of the primary care provider. So, John, can you talk to us a little bit about the issues facing primary care providers in the rural setting? Because we know that's a big issue, specifically since we're lacking specialty mental health care providers. The primary care providers are picking up a big part of the piece here of trying to help people with these problems. So talk to us about that, if you will. Yeah, right. So there's, there's a lot of agreement about the fact that the most promising approach to improving mental health outcomes is to support rural primary care providers in the delivery of evidence-based care. And there's lots of advantages to this approach. The primary care providers are available and accessible in rural areas. Uh, the primary care setting is actually less stigmatizing, so you can go and seek mental health care from your primary care provider with a degree of anonymity. Um, and quite frankly, the psychotropic medications that are prescribed by the primary care provider should be just as effective as the same medication prescribed by a psychiatrist. So and let me just uh, interject here. We know, for example, from the STAR-D study that uh, primary care providers can do just as good a job at treating depression as specialty mental health providers when provided the information about how to treat that disorder. Right, so supporting primary care uh, has a lot of opportunities there. So the disadvantages of, of doing this or the barriers to doing this are you know, the large panel sizes, there aren't as many rural primary care providers out there, and they see lots and lots of patients, and they lack kind of the, a time during an encounter to um, be able to address mental health problems. Uh, they often lack, their clinics often lack the resources and the uh, expertise to, to provide mental health treatments, and they have the competing demands of all the acute and chronic physical health illnesses that the patient faces. However, there has been, over the last 10 or 15 years, an emerging uh, best practice that has a great deal of evidence behind it in terms of improving and helping primary care providers improve mental health outcomes. And that's called collaborative care, and I'm going to refer to that here as practice-based collaborative care. So of the 28 randomized trials of collaborative care, 20 of those significantly improved um, depression outcomes. So that's a, a great deal of evidence um, 
and this model is being uh, actively disseminated. So, so what is collaborative care? Uh, it's, it's a multifaceted intervention. Uh, it involves screening patients for depression, with kind of short structured uh, screeners. It involves educating patients about the illnesses and the treatments available, activating them, getting them involved in self-management activities. Uh, it involves regularly scheduled follow-up assessments to monitor their symptoms and treatment response, monitor their adherence and side effects. It involves the delegation of key activities to non-physicians, typically nurses, and it involves ready access to mental health specialists when things get a little bit complicated. So all sounds good, but one of the things that we've noted already is that there's not ready access mental health specialists, and there's this uh, amount of work that primary care providers are doing in rural areas. So how are we going to get this into rural areas when we don't have this ready access to mental health specialists? Well, the short answer is, is telemedicine. So let's, that feeds right into our next objective, which is that we're realizing now that this technology is very important in uh, helping get access and providing services to rural populations. So maybe we can start by defining what telemedicine is and how it's been implemented in rural areas. John, can you help us with that? Yeah, well, the Institute of Medicine defines telemedicine as the use of electronic information and communication technologies to provide and support health care when distance separates the participants. Um, so this would involve uh, interactive video, telephones, electronic medical records, the Internet, cell phones, all these kind of technologies. Uh, I want to focus uh, just a bit on uh, interactive video because that's where our, our research base is, is, is the biggest. And um, all indications are that, that, that uh, telemedicine is, is very effective. Uh, both patient and provider satisfaction for interactive video is similar to face-to-face. -face. It's clear evidence that the diagnostic reliability is equivalent between interactive video and face-to-face. -face. Pharmacotherapy or medication management uh, provided by psychiatrists is equivalent when delivered via interactive video or face-to-face. -face. And um, psychotherapy is also equivalent when delivered via interactive video and face-to-face. -face. In fact, in terms of psychotherapy, there's some evidence that shows that psychotherapy delivered by telephone and even the Internet can be just as effective as face-to-face. -face. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, too, that we found that some people actually prefer having the uh, telemedicine connection sometimes to being in person. There's some protection sometimes they feel about being that distance and having somebody else in the room. There's, there's, there's one study out of Hawaii that shows that attendance is actually greater at telemedicine psychotherapy visits than in person. And we, and we see that the kids just absolutely love it. I mean, it's like particularly having grown up as a video generation or a digital generation or whatever, they just absolutely love sometimes to be uh, on the TV, so to speak. Right, and there's, and there's several different ways where you can use telemedicine, and one is kind of the traditional referral model, um, which is where rural primary care providers would refer their patients with mental health problems for diagnosis and treatment to an urban mental health specialist. And uh, this is actually the standard of care in the Department of Veteran Affairs, which have lots of rural uh, community-based clinics out there. and. Uh, you know, they, they have over 100,000 telemedicine encounters uh, per year there. And this is really facilitated by the VA's um, shared electronic medical record so that uh, the, uh, the mental health specialist in the urban area can see progress notes that were entered by the primary care provider or the mid-level 
mental health specialist that's on site in rural areas, and vice versa, the primary care provider can see the progress notes that are uh, entered by the, um, the mental health specialist uh, from the urban area. Telemedicine is uh, reimbursed by Medicare, and in most states it's reimbursed by Medicaid, though this varies from state to state. Uh, the costs are continuing to decline to making it more and more feasible. Interactive video equipment itself is fairly inexpensive. The most expensive uh, part of this now is the uh, monthly T1 line charges. So we're talking about the telemedicine, and you talked about the collaborative model. So can you go into a little bit more about this telemedicine-based collaborative care? Right. So there's one study that's shown that practice-based collaborative care uh, is effective in urban clinics that have mental health specialists, but it's not effective in the rural clinics that lack the mental health specialists. So uh, this, you know, is, is, is a barrier to the dissemination of the collaborative care model. So some of the research that my colleagues and I have done is tried to adapt the collaborative care model for these rural clinics with no mental health specialists on site. We call that telemedicine-based collaborative care. And this involves an off-site team of mental health specialists who then collaborate with the primary care providers via telephone, internet, electronic medical records, and uh, interactive video. Uh, when the patient needs, needs to be seen by a mental health specialist. And we've shown um, in the VA that telemedicine-based collaborative care for depression is, is better than usual care. And in uh, the federally qualified health center setting, we've shown that telemedicine-based collaborative care for depression is, is better than practice-based collaborative care for depression uh, in these um, FQHCs that, that lack mental health specialists. So that's one way to adapt the collaborative care model for, for rural areas. So we have kind of we have a solution then to trying to get this collaborative care model into rural um, areas using this uh, technology. Right, and I and I know uh, that uh, in your Delta project you are using technology in a, in a variety of ways, not just for patient care. Uh, so can you tell me what are some of the um, ways your clinicians are using telemedicine technology um, besides just patient care? Right. So, you know, some of the other issues, we have a very large telehealth project in the Delta region of Mississippi, which is a very impoverished uh, area with very little access to specialty care and actually even to primary care. And one of the things that we've looked at are a variety of other issues that we hear about in um, these rural areas. One is workforce development. So. It's one thing to provide the services, but you need to be sure that you can train people in those areas to do uh, things that they can do. So we have uh, some, inter some training projects underway right now where we're training, using the telehealth capability, mid-level staff and evidence-based practices at uh, the community mental health centers in the Delta. The other thing that we found is that when you have very low numbers of providers, particularly in the specialty mental health care, and this is particularly something they found in frontier areas like Alaska, is that those providers start to burn out very quickly, and they need some peer support and consultation with their peer providers. And by having this telehealth linkage, they can connect as a group, in, almost as if they're in the room together, and get this peer support and kind of individual consultation with each other. So it helps to with some of that burnout issue have and the high level of turnover you have in rural uh, health providers. The other thing we've seen is that there are ways to use it to actually improve the care. So you can expand the models of care. One of the things that's very important, as we've learned, in helping people with severe mental illnesses are these assertive community treatment teams. Well, 
to put a whole bunch of people in a van and dr drive them around in rural areas is quite expensive, as you can imagine, and you don't even have the providers, number one, to get in the van in the first place. So one of the things that we uh, have a pilot project to trying to do is to take case managers who can go out into the community carrying a piece of portable telehealth equipment, and then that allows them to have basically virtual um, assertive community treatment teams wherever they go, and it cuts down that expense and makes us much more efficient. The other thing we're using it for is it allows us, with many of the geriatric population, we're not able to even get out of their house, so the case manager can connect them with either the mental health provider or the primary health care provider. So they can get medical and mental health consultation at the same time. The other issue that we found in rural areas is this continuity of care issue, that people are sent from rural areas to hospitals, particularly state hospitals. They're discharged back to those communities with no communication, no discharge planning. And what we're doing now is setting up a project where we connect the community mental health centers through a telehealth connection to the state hospitals so that when one of the people from their community is being discharged, they will have a connection with the community mental health center before they leave to discuss the discharge planning to set up the appointment. So it makes for a smoother reintegration back into the community and hopefully will cut down on this recidivism back and forth uh, to the state hospital. The other thing that allows you to do is allows you to have consumer peer support. So in rural areas, there's smaller numbers of people with individual illnesses, but we know now that peer support is a very important intervention for, for consumers with a variety of mental health health problem, and by having these telehealth connections, they can connect with consumers in other rural areas and support each other with some of these peer support programs. So those are a variety of other things that I think you can use this technology for, and I think, you know, with the changes in technology and as these things get much better, we have a lot of opportunities to really improve care in these rural areas and offer them the same kind of care they get uh, in uh, urban areas. but. I will tell you this, that one of the things I experienced in talking about this with people in Manhattan is that actually they could use some of this technology, too, in Manhattan, where it may seem all these things are accessible and easy to get to, but in reality they have some of the very same problems about access and communication as we do in rural areas. So, John, it looks like the telemedicine issue is a very important thing. Can you summarize some key points about it for us? Well, right. Um, you know, the innovation in this technology is clearly, as you've just described, is leading to a lot of innovative ways, uh, models of care, or providing providing care. Um, so just kind of summarize uh, what we talked about is that the, it's important to focus on using telemedicine in the primary care setting because it's destigmatizing. Um, patients can go into a primary care clinic and uh, via interactive video, um, uh, have an encounter with a psychiatrist. There's a great deal of anonymity. They feel comfortable doing that. Uh, similarly, we could have in, install interactive video equipment in rural schools, in nursing homes, in community colleges, and all these kind of destigmatizing settings. They can get access to a mental health specialist. So that's nice. The telemedicine can get used within the traditional referral-based model. Um, it can be used as a way to increase uh, collaborations via the collaborative care model. Uh, it can be used for uh, rural workforce development and uh, rural pro providers supporting one another, uh, and it can be used for facilitate peer support programs, and then some of those other programs, innovative new models of providing care uh, that, that this technology kind of allows you to do. So as we draw to the end of our program, I'd like to go over some 
clinical connections or key points that we discussed. So, John, what are some of the main points clinicians or our other listeners here should take away with them today? Well, the, the first is that, you know, the vast majority of U.S. counties are in rural areas and that one in five Americans live in rural, rural areas. So this is a substantial minority of the population that we need to uh, focus on and uh, try to improve the services for. It's also that there are key uh, differences in the sociodemographics of rural compared to uh, urban individuals. There's key differences in their geographic access to care. There are important differences in their, uh, their social networks in, in terms of size and density and duration and that there are key differences in the anonymity associated with seeking treatment, and this comes into play with the um, with stigma. Uh, another key point is that you know, one of the best ways to improve outcomes is to focus on supporting primary care providers, and there's this best practice with a lot of evidence behind it known as uh, collaborative care, um, though it is difficult to implement in rural areas because of the lack of on-site uh, psychiatrists. And then that um, is, is the importance of using telemedicine technologies to, to improve care, whether it's with the referral model, the traditional referral model, whether it's uh, making the collaborative care model more implementable in, in rural primary care clinics, whether it's through workforce development or through some of the kind of the more innovative new models of, of, of providing care that, that you were talking about in the Delta Project. Well, thanks, John. It's been very informative. Uh, we've also included some resources and websites that people can use for further review and information regarding mental health care in rural or isolated frontier areas. You can see them listed here, and they are also in your course material. John, I think we should turn this over to the audience and see what questions they may have for us. For those of you uh, who are on the web, you can type your questions into the questions box. For those of you who are on the telephone, the operator will provide instructions for asking a question. We'll do our best to respond to you. So before we respond to the audience questions, I'd like um, to let them know that there are additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme.com. Uh, and at the conclusion of this Q&A session, we'll, you'll be automatically redirected to the site. So I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. Now, <laughs> we have a ton of questions, John, so we're going to get to those. But I, I have to start off one question here, and that is we didn't spend time on this topic of race and ethnicity as our real focus was primarily on how rural settings affect healthcare. But it's such a very important topic. I didn't want to let us just go past that. and it would be helpful to say something about how this uh, interfaces in the context of rural settings. So could you say a little bit, and then we'll get into going through all these questions we have here. Yeah, sure. There, there's, there's lots of rural areas where there's a high percentage of minorities, um, African Americans in the South, uh, Native Americans in, in the West, um, Latinos in the Southwest. And, and, and for these populations, it's, it's really a, a, a double whammy. You, they face all the access barriers that the um, rural individuals are, are facing in terms of uh, travel time, et cetera. Um, they, they face additional barriers in terms of probably they, uh, having more tightly knit social networks. Um, some cultures will have even higher stigma, um, perhaps lower anonymity. Uh, and, they, and then they, 
may face um, discrimination when they go see the provider. So it, it's it's really a double whammy, and uh, it really shows in in the numbers. You know, African Americans are only uh, half as likely to to seek uh, depression treatment than than Caucasians. The one um, good bit of news is that when these evidence-based practices get rolled out, like telemedicine-based collaborative care, they have even a bigger impact for minorities than, than for Caucasians. So in the study we did in the VA of telemedicine-based collaborative care, we increased the response rates of Caucasians by about 4%, but we increased it by about 17% for, for minorities. So when they, um, if, if you can provide evidence-based practices to these populations, uh, there's, there's huge increases in um, um, recovery rates. All right, thanks very much. So uh, we have um, a lot of questions, and so I want to be as fair as I can to get through these. So maybe we'll start uh, at the top. John, there was one here about screening for depression from an MD in North Dakota, and do you want to make a comment about that? You and I briefly talked about that before we went into this point. Right. Um, the most commonly used screen uh, for depression uh, used these days in primary care is, is the PHQ-9. It has uh, one question for each of the symptoms of depression, and uh, so it can be used as a diagnostic tool, but it can also be used to measure severity and severity changes over time. So that is the most commonly used um, screener and symptom monitoring tool that's out there, and it's 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 fairly simple. Uh, the primary care providers can use it, but patients can also self-administer it. Uh, we often have nurses use it, so it's it's a very versatile instrument. And there actually you, there are actually two questions you can use, right? I mean, you could just there are these two item screening things you can use. One is during the past month, have you often been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? And and then having a second question during the past month, have you often been bothered by low interest or pleasure in doing things? And those two items, the PHQ-2, uh, has very good sensitivity, not great specificity, but it's a good way to do a quick screen. Yeah, often what we'll do is the PHQ-2 yeah. uh, first, and then if that's positive, finish out the um, the rest of the questions. Now, there there are options also, I should say, to, uh, if you want to ask audio questions if you're on the phone. We're getting a lot typed into us on the chat room here. Uh, I, I'm going to take, I want to say one thing, a number of, we've had a few questions about asking to repeat some things on the slides, but those are available on the website. So if you miss something, if you go on, you can see all the slides again, and, and so the information is there. Uh, you shouldn't be lacking that. If you have a problem with that, the CME people can help you with that. Grayson, someone did notice an error on the slides on that exception. Oh, good. Well, the, you want to correct the slides? Yeah, there. the yeah. travel time um, graph is, is the rural and urban is backwards. Uh-oh. Uh, okay. right. The travel time is longer in rural areas. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for picking that up. We we uh, missed that part. So let's make sure we we'll correct that. Make right. sure that's corrected when the set is up. Um, let me. There's one here about that asked specifically about, and I want to talk just a second about this about substance abuse because someone asked about how do you envision telemedicine's impact on rural patients who are seeking access to help for their substance dependence diagnosis. So I think. The, what I had talked to earlier about uh, teaching evidence-based interventions, a very specific intervention that we're teaching rural uh, master's-level people to do in these community mental health centers is an evidence-based intervention called motivational interviewing, which is accepted as an intervention for substance abuse. And so this, we are now training people in the small um, alcohol and, and drug-dependent centers and are finding good results with that. So there's a real um, opportunity there to help people with substance abuse, which is a major, major problem in most of our rural areas, as we all know. Can I make a comment on that as well? Sure. 
is that there's another evidence-based practice for primary care settings, which is uh, brief alcohol counseling, which is uh, the primary care provider spending about five minutes with the patient to try to uh, reduce alcohol consumption, linking it in with their some of their physical problems. And that, that's quick, easy, and, and fairly effective for a large segment of the, of the population. Another thing that, w that we're doing in, in Arkansas is using telemedicine equipment to link the community mental health centers with the public substance abuse treatment programs. Because what often happens is they get bounced back and forth. They're, they The uh, substance abuse treatment centers won't treat them if they have uh, you know, active mental health problems. The mental health clinics won't treat them if they have active substance abuse. And the telemedicine is a way for a patient to be treated in one setting and to get care simultaneously from, from the other. So that's helping as well. And um, there have been a number of questions here about paying for um, telehealth, which is a, a key issue that we're all trying to fight. Medicare reimburses for it now. Medicaid, you can get a waiver if you can get your state to go along with that. We're actually in Mississippi having conversations with our Medicaid people to start reimbursing for that. So I think the future's there, but the, that's been the unfortunate thing about it is that most of this has been provided through grant uh, programs. The VA certainly uh, provides that now, which is probably the only system right now that consistently can uh, fund it and has a network. But to be quite honest, in most of the rural areas, the VA is not even reaching most of their rural vets because they set up their telehealth centers in very specific locations. But, for example, in Mississippi, we have veterans all over the place, so they go to their local centers and they don't want to drive all the way to the local VA place. So that's becoming an issue about how to do that. We know the VA uh, has, in 2008, had over 230,000 um, telehealth encounters. So that's absolutely where the action is. And, and the VA has almost 1,000 now what they call community-based outpatient clinics, like down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, in Meridian, Mississippi, and uh, usually those clinics, if they don't have a mental health specialist on site there, they don't have a psychiatrist, they'll have interactive video equipment and the patients can go to that primary care setting and then see a telepsychiatrist. Now, I, I do need to let people who uh, want to ask telephone questions do that, so I need to let the operator do that, but before we do that, I do, there are a number of questions here about how to address uh, multiculturalism through telemedicine, and one of the things that that's offered us is that we have made sure that the providers uh, are very diverse, and this has allowed us as you, to provide the kind of services that fit with the culture through a telehealth connection, and as we develop a network, what's very good about this, that we can use providers in other areas to provide to rural sites, so we're trying to set up a seamless network of putting these telehealth connections throughout the rural areas, so it doesn't have to be even at the academic center or somewhere else. We can use another community mental health center to try to negotiate with another one to provide these specific kind of services. So there are a variety of ways you can do that. You just have to kind of think out of the box. So let me um, go and allow somebody who wants to make a telephone question because we've been sitting here talking, looking at the chat room. So I want to allow that if the operator has any telephone questions. Certainly, sir. And at this time, ladies and gentlemen, just a reminder, if you do have a phone question, press star 1 on your touchstone phone to enter our quick queue now. Okay, so uh, let me go back then. Uh, let's see, a question here. This is a good question. When you consider support systems in rural areas, do, do you consider the neighborhood grocers, the drugstore staff, et cetera, that may not have strong connections with patients but be able to offer services uh, in other ways in these rural areas? Uh, John, do you want to comment on that? I actually have a comment on that, too. Um, yeah, one of the um, 
best ideas I've heard is, is to work with uh, the pharmacist and, and, and local pharmacies to um, pro- kind of provide more care around the medications. So uh, if an antidepressant is dispensed by a pharmacist, the pharmacist can spend um, more time educating the patient a, a, about the illness and the taking the medications and what side effects to expect and perhaps even calling and checking on the patient to make sure the medication is, is working for them to kind of expand their um, scope of practice about what is traditionally done. Um, and, you know, Walmarts are starting to open up. Uh, that's one of our local industries here in, in Arkansas Walmart. They're starting to have cl- clinics within um, actual Walmarts and in, in their um, Walmart pharmacies. So, yeah, that's, that's, it, it makes sense. Well, and there have been some other very interesting projects where they've actually used um, local pharmacists to, you know, as you talk about doing more education, but also doing some screening with people who come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a very interesting uh, study that was done in Guatemala in a very remote areas where they went to the beauty salons where they found out that's where all the women went every week, not to be sexist about it, but but and they went and, and worked with the beauty salon operators to help them put up notifications about depression and help them with screening. And, and so I think that's a very important resource, not only, I would say, in rural areas, but even in urban areas. And it leads to another qu- uh, point here that someone sent me uh, an email here saying telemedicine is currently being used in some New York State correctional facilities. And indeed, it's been used for quite some time in correctional facilities. It's a great connection. But I would say even in places like I've said, even in Manhattan, the telehealth connection can work even across community mental health centers there and in clinics there because it's not that much easier to get down the middle of Manhattan as it is in some of these rural areas. So this telehealth opportunity is um, useful not only outside outside of rural areas as well as in urban areas. Um, let me go back up here because there have been a number of questions in the chat room about uh, crisis management, assertive community treatment teams, and options for how to reach people who are homebound. And that's where the telehealth opportunity, I think, really becomes um, a good thing because we're now actually doing a pilot project with some portable equipment where we're allowing case managers to go out into the community. It's an opportunity to reach elderly people who are homebound in rural areas. And with broadband wireless connection, we can now hook back up to us, and it allows us to do not only mental health uh, consultations to these case managers, but also medical consultation. And there's the technology is so phenomenal now that you can actually monitor home glucose, uh, cardiac rhythms, a variety of other things. And this is being done in programs in Arizona and a number of other places. So there are real opportunities now to be cost-effective in the way of trying to reach people out in the community who, in many rural areas, just don't have the option of even getting to a central office. Yeah, I mean that is that's that's kind of the frontier of of, of telemedicine research and, and and delivery of care is is delivering the care to people in their homes. Now there was a question uh, back up here about the supply of psychiatrists, and um, now I can't find the actual question, but it was the oh, is there a national shortage of psychiatrists, or is it a distribution problem when you talk about access to services? And there, there, it's, it's primarily a distribution problem, but in certain uh, subspecialties like child psychiatrists, it's a national shortage area. But if you go into uh, Boston or you go into uh, West L.A., there's no shortage of psychiatrists, child, adult, or geriatric. So uh, certain areas, there's an oversupply. But in general, there's an undersupply, certainly, of child psychiatrists, geriatric psychiatrists. 
in many places, adult psychiatrists, but it's a, a primarily a supply problem because even in places like, I would dare say, Arkansas and Mississippi, most of the psychiatrists tend to gravitate around urban areas. And so even here, if we redistributed people, providers, we would still not have an adequate supply, but it would be a better uh, option. So by using telemedicine, we hope to kind of do it virtually. Yeah, last time I checked, I believe it was 85% of the psychiatrists practicing in Arkansas were practicing around the Little Rock area. Yeah, I think that's the same for us. We have no child psychiatrists really here practicing outside of the Jackson or Gulf Coast area. Uh, I don't. I guess I should go back and ask the operator if there's a, a, a question, an audio question. Yes, sir. It appears we have two questions. Okay. We've uh, first got one from an MD in uh, Centerville, Michigan. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Dattri Chiran. Hey. Uh, Hello. Thank you for this wonderful teleconference. I am interested in knowing about the confidentiality issues and how does uh, teleconference affect it or doesn't affect it? Well, that's a great issue about how to handle confidentiality. So when we do our, and John, you can comment on what the VA does because they're very hot about confidentiality. We, uh, these are on absolutely secure um, connections and we, uh, so there's a we have a firewall, so nobody can get access to that uh, teleconnection. And the other thing that we're trying to do, one of the big issues we didn't really address here is the importance of having electronic health records so we can reach the record at a given place and use that. Right now, we're having to fax, in many areas, we're having to fax back information, so that's one way that we protect it. But we are very careful about not allowing access to that uh, connection, so it has to be over a secure connection. John, and, do you and, want to say something about the way the VA handles it? Well, and, and typically the interactive video is done on a dedicated T1 line, so it's not the same same T1 line that, that people are using the Internet on. It's a completely separate line, which makes it um, virtually impossible to hack into. Yeah, and even on if you're trying to use it on the Internet, you have to have a secure line because uh, you just can't protect it otherwise. But that's true. What we're primarily doing with our telehealth is over these dedicated T1 lines, which uh, in many places now the Federal Communications Commission will help pay for the cost of that because it can be quite expensive. Thank you very much. That's a very important question. Thank you. We'll Thank take you. The second, why don't we take the second audio question? We want to let some other people talk. Yes, sir. And our uh, next question comes to us from an MD in Miami. Go ahead, please. I can't hear. I think the, uh, we need to turn the volume up. Operator, uh, Doctor in Miami, Florida. Yeah, if you're trying to speak, we can't hear you. Might want to take us off of mute or the speakerphone. Well, what appears he's having. Okay, well, that's right. maybe it's a Super Bowl issue down there. And for those of us down in this area, we're rooting for a particular team. So anyway, um, all right. Let me go back then. Do you have any other audio questions, or if you can get that person reconnected, let us know. Okay. Um, I'm going to go then to the, the chat room here. We have a question uh, here that someone has sent about as a nurse and a parent of someone with schizophrenia. I'm wondering if it has been considered to provide educational telecommunications for families, especially at the initial diagnosis. This seems to be a uh, consistently under-addressed need. Now, that's an absolutely important question because we are trying to use um, the telehealth connection to do a variety of other things. I think we mentioned in the um, prior discussion about using it for helping 
uh, clients actually connect with each other and to do group therapy that way when you have a small number of people put them together. But the whole other thing is provide family education and to even provide support groups for families. And I think we've been talking with the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill about using it this way, so I think there's some really great opportunities to use it um, in that way. John, did you have any other thoughts about that particular question? Yeah, we're doing the same thing here at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, providing kind of group educational sessions to not just patients with mental health disorders, but uh, multiple chronic illnesses. It works great. Another question that we got, someone was asking about pediatric mental health care in rural areas for diagnosis other than ADHD. Yeah, I think the problem is is that if you don't have trained child providers the standard diagnosis that most kids get is ADHD. I mean, because all the teachers, I think, usually decide that's what it is. And so it's our main way of getting trained child providers into these rural areas is by using the telemedicine linkage. And without that, it's very hard to get adequate, I'll be honest, you know, adequate pediatric care. One of the other issues that's come up consistently uh, as a question here is about even though we say primary care providers can do a, a decent job of treating depression in rural areas and they're the ones who are providing most of this care, they still aren't as well trained, particularly for the most um, severe disorders. And I think that's where this whole issue about trying to integrate better the uh, primary care providers and the mental health providers, and we're actually now taking our telemedicine services and linking directly to some of these primary care clinics, uh, particularly the fairly qualified clinics and some of the individual providers, because a lot of people don't want to go over for stigma reasons and other things to the community mental health center. They want to go to that primary care provider. So I think that's uh, a key component that we're going to have to do, and it offers an option to train those primary care providers also. John, any other thoughts about that? Uh, well, I just thought we might address this question about bipolar disorder. I'm not sure you saw that one, but um, there's a... a psychiatrist it looks like in upstate New York who has a problem um, collaborating with PCPs uh, with regard to bipolar disorder and mm. it's something that we've we've seen is that the primary care providers just feel very uncomfortable um, yeah. addressing bipolar disorder when 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 you screen for depression uh, we often um, uh, uh, the clinics might also often screen for bipolar disorder and what happens is you get a lot of positive screens with most of them being um, false positive screens and the question is how, who, who's, who's there to diagnose whether this patient uh, has bipolar disorder and then who's going to manage their medications, especially with these patients that won't, won't go see the mental health specialist. Um, and so that's something we're working on in terms of uh, practice-based, um, um, community-based participatory research with our primary care providers about how to handle patients with bipolar disorder that aren't willing to go to the specialty mental health setting. Yeah, and, you know, as somebody started out, I started out in primary care and then moved over to psychiatry. One of the problems that primary care providers run into is that they find these problems, they don't know who to call to help them, and they basically panic. And I think they sometimes just don't go looking for things because they're afraid they'll find something, which is not an excuse. They should. But that's why offering them the opportunity to get someone uh, to help them like a qualified psychiatrist or somebody would be very important and I think very helpful. So we need to provide that to them to make it more comfortable for them to do that. One of the things I, we do in uh, our telemedicine. Uh, John, unfortunately, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like with psychiatrists, our time is up. So uh, <laughs> I just got the uh, the signal that it's time to, to stop now, as we usually say in uh, psychiatry. And I, and I want to thank you, John, Dr. Fortney, for joining us today. 
And I really want to thank for everyone at Neuroscience CME. And I'm Dr. Norquist, and we thank you for joining us today. We hope you'll be able to incorporate this evidence into your practice to improve the care of patients, and you'll check on those online resources. So thank you very much, John, and thanks to everybody at Neuroscience CME.